What's up, everybody? I'm Sam Graham Felson. I'm Avi Klein. And you're listening to Hey Man, the advice podcast for men. I'm a novelist, Avi is a therapist, and each week we will be here to answer your questions. Our guest this week is George Pitagorsky. He is a meditation teacher who gives classes at the Insight Meditation Society here in New York. And a big reason I wanted to have him on is because so many of our guests uh, have talked about how meditation has been really helpful to them, how they practice in their day-to-day lives. Um, And I know there are a lot of meditation-curious people out there um, who don't know much about the practice, how it works, or who've tried it and got frustrated quickly. So I wanted to have George on. Um, He's a wonderful teacher. I think he's one of the best meditation teachers I've ever encountered. He has a really clear, concise, just legible way of describing some of the complex and contradictory aspects of what meditation is all about and how it can be useful uh, in your real day-to-day life, not like just how to sit on a cushion and follow your breath, but how to practice this stuff in real day-to-day experiences. So um, I hope you enjoy this. Thanks. I think a common misconception of meditation is that it is a form of suppressing thought um, or suppressing feeling. Oh, just go back to your breath. You're feeling angry. Just take a bunch of deep breaths. Yeah. And, um, you know, part of what I've learned from you, but also from just a lot of reading um, is that that is, that's really not the case. If it, I mean, there, there's even a term spiritual bypass, right. um, which, you know, is basically people avoiding their feelings by getting, you know, deeply into the methodology or the spirituality of Buddhism or whatever other mm-hmm. sort of contemplative practice they have. And, um, but yeah, it's really, a lot of it is about feeling, being very aware of your feelings. And, and I think a useful thing, maybe you can talk a little bit about this is just, um, in the insight practice, uh, so much of it is about feeling a feeling in your body, which is something I never thought about in the past. It was like, if I'm angry, it was like the anger is all in my head. I never thought like, oh, I'm feeling anger in my chest right now. And there's something, there's something about connecting to the physical symptoms of what you're feeling that I don't know how it works, but it's like this magic trick where the more aware mm-hmm. you are of how it feels like the more easily those feelings kind of self-liberate and, and just mm-hmm. kind of move on. Yeah. You know, again, I, I don't, I'm not into the uh, scientific experimentation of it, but my understanding from reading and personal experience is that when, you, uh, when you're in your head with your emotions, there's a greater propensity to uh, exacerbate the emotions through thinking process. You know, so you're telling yourself stories, that will often either suppress or exacerbate the, uh, you know, the particular emotion that you're in. When you're feeling it in your body, you're now freeing your mind from that obsessive uh, you know, quality of thinking to step back a, a moment. You're observing. You're, it's much easier to observe your body than it is to observe the, your, your thought process. Not not super much easy, but it, it's, a, it's a good first step. It's it's more natural. So we do that, and you're, so now we're saying, okay, anger is is present. Well, how do I know that anger is present? Anger is I know anger is present because I have these particular symptoms, you know. So one of the symptoms is physical constriction in the chest or wherever it, you know it happens to be for you, a sense of. Uh, uh, 
that might not be completely physical, but some kind of a sense uh, um, of the feeling of anger. You know, it's like this burning. There's this, you know, this quality that's not just physical. So, so now you you have that, and if you can identify those symptoms, and now you're observing. You're no longer as caught up as you were when you were just experiencing the uh, you know the feelings intellectually not just intellectually but in your mind right. does that make sense yeah yeah um one of one of the other things that um you you talk about sometimes directly sometimes indirectly is um is humor and um and not not taking the practice too seriously and i think i think um or so anything. many people <laughs> or anything <laughs> but so many people are drawn to meditation and say, you know what, I really should meditate. Then they try it and it sucks because they're beating up on themselves the whole time because all they're doing is thinking about all the stuff that they have to do on their to-do list. And then they quickly give up. And, um, and then there are people like me who, uh, you know, I'm stubborn. So I'm like, I'm going to get this. But, um, even after years, it was still really hard for me to concentrate. It's still, it's still to this day after six and a half years is still hard for me um, often to concentrate. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, and it's just one of these, these tricky things where like in, in so many other categories of life, if you try really hard at something, if you go to the gym and you try really hard, you're probably going to do better <laughs> than if you're totally relaxed at the gym. But in meditation, it doesn't quite work that way. Exerting extreme effort, <laughs> um, often can backfire. And so having like a, a sense of lightness and humor is really this kind of secret weapon of meditation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's, um, you know, let's say using your analogy about the going to the gym, you go to the gym, you work out too hard, you pull a muscle, you know, and then you can't go to the gym for like, you know, the next X weeks and you get fat. So it's, you know, <laughs> there's an edge that you have to play. So, you know, there's a, a quality of, uh, effort that needs to be put forth and if it's too much effort and if the effort is driven by guilt or some kind of a model that says that it has to be this way and can't be that way then there's uh, you know there's going to you're going to add stress and you're going to get to that point where it's no longer a uh, there's no payoff anymore you know uh, so now you find that sweet spot and you know, a, a lot depends on the, uh, the quality of the teachings that one is receiving. So some people will give teachings on how to do the practice. So now left to your own devices, you start doing the practice. And um, as in your case, you find that you can't concentrate in the way that you think you should be concentrating. And you get down on yourself and, you know, you, there's this whole, you know, pattern of behavior that or thinking at least that that starts and if you're not really as uh, tenacious about it as as you are you quit yeah so now i think the teachings are telling us you know the, the ones that i think are you know are really the core teachings is that the whole thing is a game the whole you know the whole process that we're in is really just a big play that uh, is very important play we, you know, we're making our living as actors in it. We're writing it partially. We're, you know, like we're doing all of this stuff, but it's still, it's just a play. So now, can I 
step back from it every once in a while and see how funny it is, even the tragic parts of it, you know, how, how attached we are, how crazy we are. So we start to see that, and we bring that quality of uh, laughter. We bring that quality of okayness. You know, it's like, it's okay that things are not perfect. It's okay that, uh, you know, that there's lots of flaws in the world and that every once in a while you're going to have a freak out or you're going to, you know, uh, drop the ball in whatever way that you think the ball should be carried and all of that. So what we try to do is get the sense that meditation is just a tool. It's like one tool in a tool basket. And there are 25 different variations on it. It's like wrenches. You know, it's like there's 800 wrenches, 700 uh, screwdriver types and all of that. So meditation is like that. It's got all of these different variations. And then on top of it, there are wisdom teachings. It's the wisdom teachings that allow us to laugh, that allow us to really see the, uh, you know, just the true nature of things. And then once you see the nature of, of everything, you just becomes light, you know, enlightened. Things get lighter. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the funny things though that um that I've that I've heard from various meditation teachers is you can practice for a while, you can read these wisdom teachings, you can develop a sense of calm. Um, and then the holidays come and you go home to your family and then it's yeah, all yeah. out the window. <laughs> well, that, that's again, if you're only doing it from the point of view of a formal practice and you're disengaging it from the rest of your life, then that's going to happen. But now imagine going to the, uh, you know, to the holiday dinner with the notion that this is a yoga class. This is a yoga class where I'm going to be put into uh, um, little exercises that are guaranteed to push my buttons. Hmm. And they're being done on purpose so that I can get better at not responding to button pushing. So then we now take what we've learned on the cushion, which is the ability to drop back a little, to, you know, to kind of come in touch with our, uh, uh, what I call the, the eye of the storm, you know, the, the place where everything is just peaceful and calm. I come in touch with that, and I bring that to the uh, to the dinner table, and everybody, you know, maybe looks at me like I'm an alien from another planet because everybody is screaming at one another or doing whatever they do, and here I am, smiling about it all, and you know, engaging, not not disengaging, but engaging, and uh, you know, doing as much as I think is possible and necessary without getting caught up, you know. You know, there's a. <clears throat> big part of me really likes that and then there's another part of me that's probably remembering how it felt when i did yoga which is that it feels like that feels like a very rigid life in a way you know like really tight and in, i'm like yoga is so hard for me because i can't fucking do it to be yeah. honest it's just it hurts you know um and i'm appreciating what you're saying about like that there's something in feeling into that that's yeah, yeah. that's valuable but like when do I just get to be like? <sighs> well, this is this is the you know great question. Now, can can that uh, experience that I just described be done in a way that's not rigid? Yeah. To, if you do it rigid, then you know, as you say, you're kind of defeating yourself. You know, it's like you need to be relaxed in it. So, how do you get relaxed in a 
context that is not relaxing. Yeah. So you learn to be that being relaxed is going back to your core. Hmm. You know, it's like it's going back to that place where you don't need your surroundings to be relaxing in order to relax. And then you change the notion of relaxing from, you know, droopy shoulders, you know, the body is like right. slack and all of that, to relaxing as a you know, erect, dignified individual without any strain. Yeah. You know? So one of the things that you've talked about in the past is, um, is comparing learning how to come to that state of relaxation to learning how to ride a bike. Um, where at first it's really hard to ride a bike it's, right. and it's incredibly strenuous and stressful and you fall off a lot and, and it's painful, just like learning yoga. Mm -hmm. But, and I still haven't gotten to this point. I'm getting slightly closer, but, um, I mean, you've described when you, when you practice a lot, once you're riding a bike, it's not rigid. You don't feel rigidity when you know how to ride a bike. Right. You're just riding a bike. Exactly. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. How long will it take me to get another 20 years? <laughs> it's, uh, it's indeterminate, <laughs> unfortunately. But the, uh, I think the quality of bringing to whatever it is that you're, you know, rigidity comes as a response to something. Yeah, it's, uh, everything has a cause. So what causes one to be rigid in, in whether it's in yoga or in, you know, in this is, let's call it the, you know, the more relationship kind of yoga. What's the cause of that rigidness? Mm -hmm. And if I can see that cause as being something that is actionable on my side of the, you know, of the transaction, then I can relax. You know, and the more I relax, the more this process takes its course and through small hits many times of you know, just this notion of relaxing into awareness becomes the norm. And the more, you know, you do it, the more it becomes the norm. But it may never be 100% all the time. You know, it's like that you just have to play it out. Well, there are a couple um, unrelaxing things that I've witnessed happen to you. For example, um, sometimes in, when, when you are in a public meditation space, you'll get a lot of types. You'll get some people who are very calm, relaxed people, and some people who have real issues and are, and some people who frankly, I mean, What's like I'm a not a therapist, but some people who I think are narcissists who are really can't get out of their own heads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, and then they'll come to you in public and sort of expect you to solve their problems for you. And sometimes can be, I, in my opinion, can be difficult. And I wonder in those kind of cases where, there's this there's this public pressure on you to be this guru who has the answers and there's somebody who seems to be in a state where it's going to be really hard to help them how do you right. how do you deal with that kind of difficult almost seemingly well, impossible I situation by, i start by recognizing that i'm not a guru who knows everything i'm in the you know like i'm basically a person who's done practice for you know like 40 some odd years i've read a lot I've been given the gift of gab so that I can synthesize some of the things that I've read and experienced in a way that satisfies other people's ability to understand it. I've, you know, for some reason have cultivated or have, 
you know, because a natural quality, some degree of empathy and, uh, you know, the ability to read what's going on in other people. So all of that coming together is what I bring to the table. I don't tell anybody that I'm going to cure them or answer all of their questions. So when confronted in a, uh, you know, kind of public uh, uh, teaching session by somebody who's looking for that kind of thing, I'll generally ask them to reflect. And to, you know, to basically look at, you know, look at themselves. You know, how would you answer this question? You know, so that more and more you're getting that other, that person to to self-reflect. Now, there are some who, where self-reflection is impossible, you know, or at that stage in their life. So just years and years ago, we, when, when uh, New York Insight was first starting, uh, some of us did uh, little meditation groups at bookstores, a couple of different bookstores. So we're at the Quest bookstore up on 53rd Street on the east side, which was a center for uh, Gurdjieffian stuff and, and uh, you know, theosophy and all of these kinds of things. But we had the back room, and it was just after 9-11, and this woman comes in who's channeling Madame Blavatsky. You know, Madame Blavatsky is like one of these old theosophists from, you know, like 1920s and maybe earlier you know, high-level philosophy person. So this woman says that she's channeling her and is now giving these teachings. So this is a meditation session where you know, like maybe there's 20 people who came to both meditate and also have some Q&A and all of that. So we got to the point, you know, I got to the point where I say, oh, this is very interesting, you know, I'm glad you're here and all of that stuff, but this is the nature of, of this session and I said that like four times, and then I finally said, you got to leave. You know, this is like, you're not able to be continue right. to stay here. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's the edge. I haven't had to do that very often. I mean, one of the, I think mm -hmm. another thing that people worry about um, and makes them hesitant to meditate is they worry that they'll turn into a doormat. Who um, you know? Just cool is, with everything. Yeah, just yeah. yeah. yeah I'm even Stephen. You can run all over me, and um, but but sometimes it's actually mindful to tell someone to get out of your face, right? I mean, Absolutely, yeah. It's you know, being mindful means to simply be observant without uh, you know having a large amount of subjectivity to be objectively observant of whatever is occurring. It doesn't say that you have to act in a certain way. And that goes back to what I was saying before. There's a need for bringing ethical behavior and you know right action, this whole notion into the into play. So you're very mindful. Here you are, and somebody's in your face, and you say, you know, how do you say to them, "Get out of my face," without expressing unnecessary anger or without getting in their face, which will then spiral the whole thing up into you know another level of craziness. So now. How does your inner wisdom, how does your uh, you know, capacity to be present and aware, empathetic, allow you now to uh, create the distance that you need with respect to that other person? So there's no reason to, you know, to think that uh, being mindful or being mellow is in some way turning you into a doormat. What happens is, though, a lot of people who have a propensity to be doormats but are over on the other side and becoming overly assertive or aggressive, now get this notion that somehow there's something wrong with their act of being assertive, and they start to 
just get into lethargy or they get into you know, allowing and they become doormats. But that means that they're not observing the quality of their mind and their motivation with respect to their actions. <clears throat> Let's go to the advice question. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a complicated one. Usually we get uh, slightly simpler ones. I love complicated. <laughs> Great. Yeah, Sam thought you would be good for this one. There's a lot happening here. Okay. Hey, man. I've never shared this with anyone except for my therapist for reasons that I think will be obvious. I'm 55 now. 20 years ago, I was a raging alcoholic. Not only did I drink a lot, I'm told I was mean and scary. I was also incredibly a functional alcoholic and managed to hold down a very well-paying corporate job. Most of my anger and abuse was turned on my first wife. To be honest, I can't remember most of what I said, but I've heard enough to know that it was the typical cruel, nasty things that an alcoholic might say. I accused her of cheating on me. I insulted her looks and intelligence. I broke things in front of her. I continued to do this after she became pregnant. I never laid a hand on her, but everything I did was abusive. Four months into the pregnancy, she moved across the country and divorced me and has never spoken to me again. I've never spoken to my son, never reached out because of the shame I feel. Her family is very wealthy, so she never pressed me for child support, but I've been setting money aside each month. It was the catalyst for me changing my life. I became sober. I went to therapy. I made amends with many other people in my life. I have dated since, but never seriously. I've never had any other children. There's a nagging feeling inside me that I'm still punishing myself. I feel like I've waited too long to reach out to my son and his mother. What if he's a mess because he never had a father? What if he's a mess because I traumatized his mother while she was pregnant? What if he hates me? I don't want to face that, but I also don't know what to do. Signed, Alone in Astoria. Mm-hmm. That was a very heavy one for me to read. This is yeah, definitely yeah. the heaviest advice question yeah, we've gotten this, so far. This is a this is very heavy. So, so we need to just sit with it for a moment. And yeah, not just spring into action, but uh, yeah. I mean, when I read this, I felt a lot of uh, hopelessness that I imagine is what this person feels. Mm-hmm. You know. Like that is what's too late feels like. It's like yeah. there's uh, there's nothing you can do. I yeah. think that's how this guy feels. Yeah, and alone in Astoria, it's like adds to that uh, sense of uh, despair. Mm-hmm. But yeah. what does? I mean, another thing that stood out to me though is that he did actually get sober. Yeah. And this isn't a letter from a raging alcoholic right. who's still abusing people. And uh, I mean, this is a letter from someone who has been sober for how many for a long time. Yeah. And has changed as a person, it sounds like. But he's living in this prison of regret mm-hmm. um, and also regret about, I mean, you know, basically things that he did while he was in a real condition of addiction, mm-hmm. you know? So that's, a, that's another thing maybe we could talk about is just, um, uh, you know, what, 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 how do we like emotionally respond to, um, having been addicted to something? Is that yeah. something to feel guilty about right. that at one point in your life you were addicted? You yeah. Know? Well, there's something, it, what you're making me think of that I've heard many times because from people I work with and friends who have overcome addictions is that, there's something helpful about calling yourself an addict, right? Even a- after you're sober, that yeah. they they rely on 
I need to kind of keep that yeah, in the yeah. front of my mind. I'm an addict, um, so yeah, that they won't a, slip up again. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that there's uh, you know certainly with respect to certain drugs and alcohol, there's some reality to that, which is basically that if you are uh, let's say have a propensity to be an alcoholic, there's a physiological and psycholog deep psychological uh, propensity there, yeah. and that if you don't remind yourself. You're going to take that one drink, and you're going to just go back into that realm. Right. Uh, assuming that uh, you haven't gotten to that place where you're now completely free of it. Right. The flip side, though, is that then you're always looking at yourself as probably the worst version of yourself. Not necessarily. You can be recognizing, you know, it's like uh, you're a, uh, there's a recognition that you have this disease. Mm-hmm. There's no, you, the the next step of putting some kind of pejorative around that is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm an addict. Yes, I'm a cancer survivor. Uh, therefore, I have a propensity to uh, you know to maybe have a recurrence. Yeah. What's the difference between being an addict or an alcoholic or a cancer survivor? Right. You know, so is the cancer survivor, uh, you know, feeling guilty about having been, you know, having been a cancer patient? I mean, I think probably the difference for this guy is that being an alcoholic also meant doing horrible things. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 yes. So so there is a conflation there. How do you now, and this is what I hear Sam was, you know, referring to, how do you forgive yourself? Right. Where where does that quality of forgiveness come from? And uh, can you apply it to yourself? with equal weight that you would apply it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, how much do you hold on to the, uh, you know, to the anger or to the shame and how quickly can you just say, okay, that was then I made a, a conscious decision not to repeat that kind of behavior. I'm doing everything in my power to not repeat that kind of behavior. And, uh, okay. You know, if people don't like that. If, if people don't like me because of what I did in the past, I can't do anything about that. Mm-hmm. All I can do is say, I, I like me enough right now to know that what I did in the past is not uh, something I have to schlep around with me as a weight. You know? I think, I mean, one, one thing that strikes me is that there's a difference between, we've all done inadvisable things when we were younger and less mature, right? Things that we're not necessarily proud of. But there's a different quality between me... Um, you know, treating my body terribly by, you know, engaging in unhealthy behavior for myself and me doing something that hurt other people. It seems, it seems easier for me to forgive myself for having done stupid things to myself and harder to forgive myself for having done hurtful things to other people. And I guess, I guess one thing I wonder about is like, let me say that that's a wonderful character trait. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you. Uh, but do, do we need to, um, I think people maybe fetishize forgiveness in a way of like like they need to get another person to forgive them to stop feeling guilty about what they did to other people. Maybe fetishize is too strong yeah. of a word, but um but 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 but, th- but this 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 brings up cuz a question for me is like I wonder does does he does is it really so important for him to go to uh, reconnect with this person who maybe doesn't want to reconnect with him and seek whatever he wants from her, whether it's forgiveness or 
some kind of reconnection? Or is this some, is this work he can just do on his own by just forgiving himself without reconnecting to her? That's another question I'm struggling with. Yeah. I mean, with regard to that last part of it, I think that, yes, one can do that kind of thing on their own. It's not necessary to have forgiveness from another party to forgive yourself. That's some They're conditioning. two different things. They're two different things, yeah. yeah. So there's, you know, there's a step in the 12-step program that is to uh, go and apologize or you know, like open up what you've done to, with others. I don't remember how they rephrase it. But my understanding is that that's not about getting them to forgive you. That's about simply acknowledging what you've done mm-hmm. yeah, so that you're clear, that they're clear, that you recognize that what you've done. And then, you know, pretty much you're saying that, you know, I don't intend to do this again. Uh, You're not necessarily asking them for forgiveness. You're simply using that exchange, which does, in my opinion, doesn't necessarily have to be a person-to-person exchange. If the other person, you know, you you don't want to be like the Boy Scout that's dragging an old lady across the the street, you know. So if the person doesn't want to talk to you, you say, okay, I'm still acknowledging what I've done. And they don't want to talk to me. That's their problem. It's about accountability. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm taking account of, I'm becoming accountable. I'm feeling that, you know, that that's there. And then I look at my guilt. How, how long do you carry guilt? Yeah. You know, what's its purpose? That's a good question. I mean, he writes, there's a nagging feeling inside me that I'm still punishing myself. Right. Yeah. So like he's got insight into that. Yeah. That he's carrying around. Yeah. He's sort of not allowing himself to live yeah. fully. Yeah. Right. And then there's a question in my mind. We're making the assumption that this is a, uh, that in his life, this is, you know, a significant uh, portion of his feeling, tones, and so forth. Is that true? We, you know, is, the rest of his life really nice, and this is like ten percent that's right. you know that's that he's dealing with, which is you know still important. Yeah. Or is it ninety percent, and the rest of his life is you know he, he goes to some meaningless job and stay, goes home and stays in his apartment because he's, you know, feeling so uh, guilty about what he's done in the past. So right. it would be interesting to get that kind of that sense of what would the where difference? It is. Yeah. I think the difference would be in uh, <clears throat> the ease of treating it. Mm-hmm. The uh, my sense would be that if this is ninety percent of the guy's life, he's got to be much more intensive about uh, about dealing with it, you know, and getting you know pretty much how do you get over that? Right. You know, you don't want to. He's in effect, as he says himself, he's doing this to himself. Yeah. You know, so if it's ninety percent of his life and he's still doing it for himself. He's just transferred his addiction from alcohol to, you know, being miserable. Self-flagellation, yeah. So once that uh, is understood, then maybe he has a, you know, a a chance of fixing it. If, on the other hand, he's 90% okay, he's got a nice relationship, you know, and, and, you know, stuff like that, then, you know, he can play with it more. Yeah. You know, he's not as... uh, He's not asthma sugar, (laughs) (laughs) to use a clinical term. Right. (laughs) I, you know, sometimes when I'm working with someone and they're afraid of something, I do just like to imagine. Well, what if it came true? Oh, yeah. And I'm one. Like he has these questions. uh, What if his son's a mess because he never had a father? Okay. Yeah. Right. Like, what if he's a mess because 
you traumatized his mother. Well, how would you be feeling if that's what happened? If and, turned and why not find out? Why yeah. you know why go through you know? There's so many different scenarios that one could make up about you know what things are going to be are like and all of that. Why do that? Like I guess I it would give him some insight. I think into his own guilt. Oh, I see. If he could imagine, yeah. you know, like okay, let's say what's the worst case scenario? Here? Yeah, yeah. So your son is like really screwed up. Yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah, yeah. he did this thing, and this right. is the consequence of it. Yeah. Then how's that going to feel to find that out? Yeah, yeah. And shouldn't you? Yeah, and it, it would be good to feel it because now you can, you know, start to deal with consider it dealing yeah. with it. Yeah. yeah. Is there? Um, are there? Are there teachings? I I don't want all all of uh, George's advice to be you know through necessarily a Buddhist lens, but I am curious. Are there are there teachings specifically about how to deal with guilt? Is there a place for guilt? Um, uh, that's okay in the mindfulness tradition. I <clears throat> because guilt is so much about holding on, and yeah, so yeah, much yeah. of the practice of, yeah. of of mindfulness is about letting go. I used to have this teacher Hilda Hilda Charlton. She was a teacher like back in the seventies, and uh, she used to say that guilt is this useless thing. That if you're carrying guilt around with you. All you have to do is make a commitment to not do whatever it is that you did that you're guilty about, and just let it go. Uh huh. Do you agree with that? I think so. Yeah. It's like you know. It's like basically, if you're looking at what you've done, you feel there's a difference between guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. In the teachings, they talk about the usefulness of shame because what shame does is it it uh, helps you to monitor your behavior. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to do anything that's shameful or that's you know going to put you in ill repute or what have you. So the uh, the question is now, okay, you did something, you're ashamed that you did it, but it's past. There's no way to undo it. Yeah. So now the teachings, as I interpret them, says okay, you have to accept the, what has happened in the past. You have to accept what's currently the situation in the moment, in the present. Now, look forward. What do you want to do? Do you want to carry the burden of guilt around? Or do you want to make an intention to not do anything that would make you feel guilty in it again? There's something, you know, I'm just thinking about this guy. There's something, I mean, our minds just do this, you know, but something so exquisite about the punishment that he's doled out to himself because here's this son, right, who's going to live, outlive him. And every bad thing that happens to that kid is just another opportunity to feel bad about yourself because you caused it, because you, you were a bad father. You know what I mean? Like, you could yeah, do that to you yourself that if you want. Yeah, like, yeah. So yeah. there's like, yeah. like wow. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could really go all the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's something that one has to be really, uh, you know, cognizant of for oneself. It's, you know, how much of our pain is unnecessary and caused by models like that i guess and you know another question that's making me think of i guess <laughs> i'm getting really into this because it feels like the most like a therapy session uh-huh. uh, <laughs> uh it's like i wonder what he would be feeling if he didn't feel guilty you know like yeah. if you if you did let it go then what would that be well, like you could be Feeling guilty that you're not feeling guilty. <laughs> I, I've been thinking about this a lot, like um, that it's being unhappy 
is strangely addictive. Mm -hmm. There's something exciting yeah. about being unhappy because yeah. it's, I mean, it's drama. I mean, every, uh, I'm, I'm a novelist and it's uh -huh. very hard to write about happy people in novels. It's very yeah. easy to write about unhappy people because there's conflict, there's drama, there's stuff happening, there's emotional volatility. And I think, um, it's just a funny thing I've been playing with in my head a lot when, um, I'm, I'm having a reaction to something and I can catch myself right before I'm about to do something destructive. And like, and often I still do the destructive thing. <laughs> and then after I do the destructive thing, I'm like, okay, this is going to take a lot of practice. You don't like in the moment, you often don't want to be happy, but you have to try <laughs> because you, you know, like you well, want to, in the moment you want to do the thing that like, there's such an interesting take on this from, an absolute point of view. If you, know, if you take a very non-dualistic uh, uh, position, there's the notion that happiness is unconditioned, that happiness is our normal, natural uh, milieu. Okay. So, so if that's the case, then the idea of getting happy by doing something to get happy, other than dropping away all of the things that don't allow us to be happy, because we are happy, you know, intrinsically. We're just, you know, deluded into thinking that we're not happy. So there's that dimension, and it's just a mental model that we can cultivate. Mm -hmm. Then there's the, the whole idea that uh, why would something that is um, unwholesome and, and uh, potentially damaging, why is that something that we find um, that feeds us in some way? So right. there's that aspect of the question. And that, I think part of the answer is that boredom is one of the most difficult things to deal with. So now, a negative ex emotion or a positive emotion that's intense is going to take us out of boredom. If we I don't, I don't believe in boredom. Get what's? <clears throat> tell me about boredom. Boredom is something that people. I mean, I find myself not being bored that much, but. Uh, partially because I always find something to do. Yeah. <laughs> but people complain about this quality of being so uneasy yeah. with not having any distraction. Yeah. So that, you know, I, I think that that's what's meant by boredom. It's yeah. this, you know, it, it's hard to uh, def define all of the specific characteristics of it, but there's a physical, it's kind of like anger, you know, it's... Mm -hmm. it's <clears throat> I usually feel like there's another emotional component, worry. you know, going yeah, yeah. on. Yeah, that like we're coping with it looks like boredom, but it is more like you're saying like an unsettledness. It's an unsettledness, restlessness. Yeah, yeah. and and now the the uh, the cure for boredom is to recognize that it is something that is caused by restlessness, something that's being hidden and wanting to keep hidden, and now opening to that means opening to often a negative. Uh, sensation or negative emotion of yeah. some sort. Right. So now, if I can open to that negative emotion, I'm no longer bored. Mm -hmm. Now, if I don't have something's any, happening. Uh, yeah, <laughs> something's happening. You know, something's and, always um, happening, and it's intense. You know, so so here it is, and now I don't have any alternative. So I'm either going to have to find another distraction that is, uh, you know, going to soothe me in some way, or I deal with the the negative. Uh, emotion and potentially that becomes a habit that becomes a feeding mm -hmm. so you know maybe that's one of the you know qualities that associate with uh, depression yeah 
you know, is just the need for that kind of feeling to, you know, to allow the body and mind to go through whatever it needs to go through in that And by the way, all of this um, may sound to a listener like, oh, well, that's great, but easier said than done. The truth is it's hard to get to this. I mean, it takes a lot of practice to get to this kind of place. Just because you can describe it doesn't mean you can do it. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. I, you know, like in in my classes, I tell people that these practices are very simple, Mm -hmm. but they're not easy because basically, ultimately you confront yourself and all of the things that you've built up across your life that keep you from being intrinsically happy. Yeah. So now there's this quality, I, I refer to it as fierce practice. This notion of, you know, do you want to simply medicate yourself with these, you know, these things, use, uh, you know, uh, spiritual bypass and not deal with your, you know, your negative stuff. And uh, you can go through life and, you know, be, uh, you know, reasonably successful and, and kind of happy and all of that, or do you want to cut to the to the core mm-hmm. and you know be in you know some degree enlightened and and you know free of unnecessary suffering, and then able to you know to help other people. And I mean, with regard to starting to get to more practical advice for this guy, I yeah. mean, I think I think um, you know on in a lot of movies you know, let's say this was a Hollywood movie. At the end, he would go back to his wife and she would forgive him and he would meet his son and, and then he would go home and the, right. the credits would roll, right? And Not in if real, I wrote <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. In real life, though, um, uh, you know, um, even if the ideal scenario played out where his perfect interaction um that he was imagining came true with his with his ex and and his child um he would still have to go back home and um it's not like the guilt can evaporate that way you know like like it's not like one quick epiphany or one quick great interaction with another person can can heal you and i think Mm -hmm. you know that's why like um whether it's meditation or some other practice the thing that i like about a um consistent practice that you're not doing you know for a year or 10 years but i think that you're doing for your whole life is that um you know is that it requires lots and lots of work to to undo all the knots that he's tied up for himself yeah yeah, it's not a quick thing right yeah yeah Yeah. so i i mean i would give him a lot of compassion absolutely yeah yeah absolutely and you know and there's a good chance i mean people who've been in the program, you know, an alcoholics program for you know, like as many years as this, you're talking probably 20, 30 years, yeah. they have some, you know, they've done work on themselves. Yeah. I mean, just to be, to have the capacity to not fall into your addiction yeah. is, you know, a sign of a tremendous amount of effort. So again, this might be just one dimension of his life that he needs, you know, some kind of a short term, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy to get past this, you know, this quality of guilt, and then maybe he opens himself up to being able to write a letter, or to you know, make a phone call or whatever it is that would allow him to, uh, you know, to, to at least test the waters. Can he? Um, what what advice would you give him? You know, as he's about to draft a letter, because part of me, I, I feel I'm not talking about giving. You know, you should say this, but. Um, it seems to me that like a really important thing for this guy to mentally prepare himself for is that, um, 
anything can happen in reaction to his right. letter and that he shouldn't be writing it with any kind of transactional mm -hmm. hopes. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No expectations. Yeah. I think and like something like you alluded to before was, uh, right. Like we, sometimes people can get into this thing where they want the other person to forgive us and feel for us. And, right. and we turn it into a, about how bad we feel, which is different from, I see what I did to you. Yes. You know, yes, and exactly. that's a really important, you need yeah. to be clear about that emphasis. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. if I were working with him, I would also, you know, I would feel in a way uh, friendly towards the guilt and the shame that he feels because it is, uh, I mean, he's human, right? It's yeah. the catalyst for uh, these changes, right? Yeah. It has to be that that something felt wrong with his life is what inspired these really hard things that he's done that some people never do, right? Right. So so your guilt and your shame have, have been a friend to you. Yes. Um, but it, and then I may wonder if it's time to set them aside for something. Exactly. Else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, referring to them as a friend makes it harder to let them go, mm. you know, but, you know, something that is very valuable, has been very valuable to you, yeah. has been a, you know, like a really a catalyst for your ability to change your life. Yeah. And now you've changed your life, mm -hmm. you know, so you still need that. Right. One of the um, practices that, I find kind of funny and fun uh, when I'm when I'm uh, practicing meditation is to give um, humorous nicknames to some of the uh, recurring voices in my head. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, like just to give one of the le least controversial ones, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a novelist. I'm always trying to like think of something to write. So, you know, I have, uh, you know, this uh, whatever, you know, trying to be Leo Tolstoy voice in my head that's very ambitious and wants to come up with it. You know, mm -hmm. so I'm like, all right, hi, Leo, there you yeah. are. You know, and, and there's something very just funny about um, and liberating when you just see, okay, here's this thing that's coming up over and over again. Um, a, a more oppressive one would just be guilt. I do feel guilty sometimes that I'm not a good enough person or not a good enough father mm -hmm. or husband or whatever. And, you know, I have a nickname for the guilty guy. Yeah. And um, and there's something about just um, saying, all right, I see you again. You came back. Welcome to the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm aware of, you know, your presence, mm -hmm. um, but you're only one voice among millions yeah, in exactly. my head. And uh, and I think if you can, it, you know, it, there's, there's something uh, when you apply that kind of humorous nickname or whatever that that robs that one voice of monopolizing power. Yeah. And if you don't do that, it's very easy for that one voice to monopolize. And like, you know, I've had meditation sits where I sit for 45 minutes the entire time I'm out to lunch thinking about what next novel I've written because I didn't <laughs> notice that Leo Tolstoy had walked into the room. Right. Now, here's a question. Who is it that's um, giving the nicknames? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> then once you ask that question, your mind really gets blown and... <laughs> So do we have, so, okay, we have, we got some suggestions if you're gonna, how to engage with this guilt and shame. I think we all are sort of in a consensus yes. one way or the other. I don't think you need to carry this quite in the way you're carrying exactly. it. Exactly. And you seem to know it too. That's why you wrote the question. Right. Right. There's a little spark in you that knows this is not the way to keep doing this. Um, and then if you are going to engage, if you're going to write a letter, um, to come at it with the right intention. Yeah. 
I like the idea of writing a letter rather than, you know, yeah. knocking on the door. Oh, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. Knocking and, on the door would uh, be over or the Or even top. calling, I think, is... is uh-huh. I like the idea because um, it's an offering. It's saying, here's, here's where I'm coming from. Right. And you are free to respond or not. Right. And there's not as much pressure. And, um, you know, and I think... Um, I've talked about this on the podcast mm-hmm. and you know, I'm, I'm doing very Buddhist stuff today cause George is yeah, yeah. probably just trying to impress my teacher. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I think, I think this is also a question of, um, wise speech, which is one of the steps on the so-called eightfold path. Yeah. Um, which is, um, you know, what is it, what constitutes, um, wise or thoughtful or mindful speech and mm-hmm. you know one of the factors of of what constitutes it is is the other person in a place to receive yeah. what you want to say and she may not be and i think a letter is a good mm-hmm. is a good way to thread the needle where it's like mm-hmm. she can take it she if she wants she could even rip up the letter she doesn't yeah, even exactly. have to open it i i i'm curious what the two of you think about this but i know someone who wanted to make amends for something and they came up with the idea of first reaching out like uh i've been thinking about this for a long time and i have some things i'd like to share with you mm-hmm. are you open to hearing them right. you know before like spilling yeah, yeah, your guts yeah. and uh oh that's interesting yeah, i think that that's a very good technique yeah. because it 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 still allows him to self relieve his uh, his issues but it's really asking her yeah, it's respectful yeah, and, yeah. and res- in a way that her last interactions with you were not yeah exactly yeah and then I think, you know, beyond the letter, um, it's like that, that, that is a potentially very cathartic thing for him, but, um, he's still going to have to ultimately have, uh, a practice of self-compassion. Like yeah. he's, mm-hmm. he's going to have to, this is between you and yourself. I mean, yes. there's that piece is, that's an important piece, but right. you, you can't pretend like it's not right. between right. you and yourself. And, yeah. and he can't, you know, like, um, also like he shouldn't wait till he writes the letter to start feeling compassionate towards himself. He should start feeling compassionate right away. Yeah. In fact, you'll probably <laughs> yeah, yeah. write a better letter the yeah, more yeah, you're yeah. able to do that. Yeah. And I think asking him what his expectation is, mm-hmm. what would he like yeah. to have happen? Yeah. And how uh, likely is that to happen? Yeah. And how attached is it? To, right. How attached is he to having it to that outcome? Yeah. 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 So I think that that would help him to, you know, to at least frame it for himself and then if he has somebody to bump that against, it might be found that his expectations are completely delusional right. or too much, uh, you know, putting too much pressure on the other party and, and all of that. So, you know, how could he work that out? So there would be a, some need for uh, either another question like this or mm-hmm. some kind of an intervention. Yeah. Um, we want to ask you if, if there's a... Uh, piece of advice or two that have stuck with you throughout your life that you return to. But before I ask that, can I just ask a, a, a pre advice question, which is um, you're, you're the first and hopefully not last meditation uh, expert that we'll have on this show uh, for all of the meditation curious people who are scared or skeptical or have tried and then gotten very quickly discouraged. Um, what's the, what's the, first thing that you would say to somebody um, who wants to try but is intimidated? Well, I would say that, uh, that they should take some kind of a, uh, a class, whether it's online or, or not. You know, probably to start with, do a little, you know, depending on who they are and what their propensities are, do a little research. 
go online, look at a YouTube uh, video by Joseph Goldstein or uh, John Kabat-Zinn or somebody on that level. Spend some time listening to that. Spend some time doing a little bit of research on the pros and cons of different kinds of meditation uh, or find somebody that, you know, that they can ask and uh, get more comfortable with it. But mostly, what's, why are you interested in it? What, you know, what brings you to being interested in it? Is there some degree of uh, desire for relief from something? Is there a desire for acquiring something? You know, like happy, more happiness, you know, better uh, sleep, whatever it is that... So what, what's your motivation? Why are you even interested in this? Then, if you're interested in it, and you know why you're interested in it, now, you know, what is it really about? And, you know, I would recommend that people be really careful because there's a lot of people teaching meditate, you know, mindfulness meditation and other kinds of meditation. And I don't know what proportion of them are really what I would consider to be uh, teachers that I would want to send somebody to, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, it gets into a weird space, you know, as a teacher. I don't want to have to, I can't judge other teachers unless I, you know, actually sit with them and, and hear what they have to say. But the feedback that I have from uh, a lot of students is that there's a lot of teachers out there that are not really uh, teaching the Dharma in a full way. They might be able to teach technique, but are not really bringing the technique home into daily life. Daily life practice is the, uh, you know, is the key. That's why we're here. If you can, yeah, exactly. So if you can't use your life as if it were a meditation retreat, you know? It doesn't have to be silent. This is a, this, we're on retreat, right? Now. <laughs> I remember I said, when I had my first kid uh, almost three years ago, I said to George, I said, well, it looks like I'm not going to go on a meditation retreat for a long time. He said, you're about to have an 18-year meditation <laughs> retreat with exactly. your son. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so basically be careful because, you know, you're working with your mind. It's like, you know, you want to do an acid trip, you want to have a guide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is equivalent to that. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so, you know, be careful with, and you know, when you go back to what uh, advice that has been given to me, mm-hmm. the one of the two very diverse, um, sets of advice that I got was one to make everything that you do part of your sadhana, part of your practice towards liberation, everything, no exceptions. So it's that that uh, you know that now allows us to use our life as a uh, as a vehicle for uh, for liberation it's like you know and there's so many different metaphors for it. you know like krishna is telling arjuna that uh, you know that your life is just devoting every action to you know to god that's one dimension of it another you know way of expressing it is everything that you come in contact with that raises any kind of charge with respect to you is a signal that you now need to uh, to look within and find out what the cause of the charge is and get more and more into the intrinsic nature of your mind the happiness and you know expression of love so you know it's a lot of different ways of putting it but everything is sadhana everything is practice it's all grist for the mill yeah so that's one dimension Another great piece of advice that I got was to make sure that you have at least a year's worth of 
for money in the bank uh -huh. so you could tell your uh, boss to go screw himself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, that's it for our show this week. Uh, as always, if you have a question, we do not have the answers, but we will still talk about it. So get in touch. You can send us your question at heymanpod at gmail.com um, or even better, leave us a voicemail at 917-426-4326. I was being snarky when I said we don't have the answers. We don't have the answers because you have to live your life and life is complicated. But we have good ideas. I think we have suggestions that are helpful. So I think, I think you get something out of asking for help. I didn't mean to be so dismissive. Don't waste your time. But... It won't be a waste of time. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter, Hey Man Pod. That's where you find us. Um, and if you have a moment, can I just ask that you give us a review um, on whatever platform you're getting your podcast from because it really helps other people find out about the show. Um, and I think other people will really like it. And you could, if you like the show, that's just a little way of... Uh, of passing passing it along and letting us know you appreciate us should feels good feels good you should share what's in your heart all right have a great week talk to you soon talk to you next week bye